Immersive technology has shown real promise in treating both physical and psychological illnesses. It's taking hold at the Veterans Health Administration, enabled by a special network called Extended Reality Network. XR. The leaders of the team that built the network are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Ann Lord Bailey and Caitlin Rollins are director and deputy director of clinical tech innovation at VHA, and they join me now. Ms. Bailey, good to have you on. Thank you so much. And Ms. Rollins, good to have you back. Thank you. And tell us exactly what happens at the office that you guys had, the clinical tech innovation unit. What happens there? What's the goal here overall? So we work with the Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning. We're a a program within that office, and that office is really leaning into designing, developing, testing, scaling a variety of innovation across VA because what we want is for our veterans to have the access to the soonest and best care. Um, We want our clinicians and our frontline staff to be healthy and whole, so we want to lean into whole health as well. And if there are ways that we can leverage clinical tech and innovation in that space to help support those initiatives, we certainly want to do that. And Ms. Rollins, how has, I guess, augmented reality, virtual reality, immersive technology, these are all, I guess, related or maybe the same thing. (laughs) What do they do for people that they can benefit from? So extended reality is definitely the kind of umbrella term. We also use immersive technology as kind of an umbrella term for both virtual reality and augmented reality. But it really depends on how you're using it with an individual. So a lot of our use in the VA currently centers around virtual reality for patient-facing solutions. So it may be a general positive distraction to aid with a lot of different diagnoses, or it may be existing evidence-based modalities through the new mode of virtual reality. And then, of course, there's also education and training, which may more often use either VR or AR, but that can be for clinical skills or other types of skills and education that need to be provided to both staff, patients, and or their caregivers, depending on what the particular platform is. And the other technology that VA has been really a leader in, and not just from the pandemic, but maybe that accelerated it, is telemedicine. And can VR and AR, augmented reality, can they also coexist in a tele type of situation? They definitely can. And so that is something that the VA is pursuing right now is how do we get these devices into the hands of patients in their homes to help extend the reach of the healthcare system, extend the reach of the actual clinicians, and also empower patients to take over some of their own care, take responsibility for their own care using these devices independently at home. So we actually have one pilot right now where we're sending devices home with patients for chronic pain management using a program that's based off cognitive behavioral therapy that they use independently every day to hopefully aid with their overall pain management and learning how to become more resilient to the symptoms of chronic pain. So that is a current pilot, but that is absolutely something that's possible. I guess that beats swinging an imaginary sword at an imaginary foe and crashing into your television set because you can't see it. That is very true. That sounds much more hazardous to the health than what we were going for. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And uh, Ms. Bailey, this XR network, it's not a network of wires and high bandwidth connections, is it? 
No, this is a network of people, which is something that we've seen uh, be incredibly powerful as this collaborative community. So I know we throw a lot of names out and about, but uh, we have a VA immersive team that focuses on continuing to expand use of immersive technology like virtual reality and augmented reality across VA. And one of the programs within VA immersive is this XR network. And what we've seen is this ground up effort, this groundswell of frontline staff and veterans who every time they put their head in a headset, which is one of our mantras, get heads and headsets, right? Every time a veteran or clinician puts their head in a headset, the way that you see the demeanor of that person change. And then as soon as they take the headset off, it is what else can we use this for? When we see those kinds of things, we know this is something that we need to do more of. We need to invest human capital. We need to invest resources in because the veterans and staff are asking for more. And what's really fascinating about it is it's not just one discipline. It's not just physicians or nurses or social workers. It's disciplines across the entire healthcare system. We're speaking with Ann Lord Bailey and Caitlin Rollins. They lead the Clinical Tech Innovation Team at the Veterans Health Administration, and they're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And when there's a new, say, surgical procedure, the people that do surgery have to learn this. And sometimes you have to go for additional training, you know, maybe at an institute that pioneered that procedure. Or if there's a new drug, there's all kinds of things you need to learn. This is a new medical delivery system, which you said is diffused among not just physicians, but nurses, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, I guess anyone that would come in contact with a patient. So in this XR network, what kinds of training and materials do people get such that they can responsibly get into the VR work with patients? That's a great question. So I'm actually a pharmacist by training. Caitlin is a nurse. It's been one of the really exciting things, as we said, that we've seen. And we provide now a course we call XR 101, and it's it offers 20 different continuing education units across multiple disciplines, physical therapists, occupational therapists, recreation therapists. That's one of the values of being in VA is that VA really allows clinicians and providers to function at the top of their license. And we're able to now train those clinicians now to use this new modality. And it's been really exciting to see. And when it comes to just a specific question, pain management is an important endeavor for VA, always has been. And, you know, VA was a pioneer in the responsible use of the OxyContin and so forth and how to get off it quickly and this kind of thing. What happens in a headset, for example, that can help people with pain management. So that can be, um, like I said, a lot of different things. So it might be something like cognitive behavioral therapy where they're doing mindfulness and deep breathing and other, you know, already evidence-based modalities in virtual reality. And the benefit of virtual reality is that it it's more immersive. You actually feel more engaged with the content because you are present in this virtual world. And that's the same thing with any type of education and training. And as we know, cognitive behavioral therapy is really about training your brain. So similar to how we would do any sort of clinical training or other types of education and training in VR, same thing with the patients. So it's educating them in a more engaging, immersive way that allows for better knowledge retention when it comes to how they're training themselves to better manage their own chronic pain. And then, of course, for pain management, it can also be as simple as positive distraction, where they're playing interactive games or they're traveling to places all over the world. Because especially if you're in acute pain postoperatively, what you need is a distraction. You need something to interrupt that pain signal going to your brain by introducing positive stimuli. And so that's what virtual reality is able to do in that capacity as well. 
Because the question comes up for people that might have chronic pain, it's great if you're in that headset. When you take a pill, it'll last for four hours or six hours. You take off the headset and you might feel great, but then you get in the car to drive over to the VFW hall and all the traffic and the tension returns. Does this have a lasting effect outside of the headset, I guess is my question. So that's something that's definitely still under investigation. And one of the things that we hope to help answer is exactly how long does the effect last? We know that it works incredibly well in that moment and immediately following a session, but what is the cadence for use, you know, and how long do they need to use it each time they use it to create a lasting effect? Or if you're using it for something like cognitive behavioral therapy, how does that help them to learn how to handle those situations when their pain gets triggered again? So yes, they're fine when they were leaving their house, but then traffic, everything else, everything compounded on itself. Now they're feeling it again. How do we use virtual reality to train them even in those moments to kind of bring themselves back down out of that pain or out of the anxiety or whatever it might be, whatever diagnosis they might be dealing with? Is anecdotally, we hear those reports from veterans um, and even some of our clinicians and staff that have tried virtual reality is they may obviously be walking around a grocery store without a headset on, something is triggering to them, whether it be pain or anxiety related, and they recall some of those experiences they had while they were in the headset. That psychological presence really is transformative. So as Caitlin said, that's something we certainly want to continue to uh, contribute to that rigorous evidence for. And as a program, let's get back to the program aspects of this, because VA has however many hundred and odd big medical centers, hundreds of more places of delivery throughout the country, private places of delivery. How are you ensuring that this becomes equally accessible by all veterans across a really large system where it might take five years to deploy a new pill bottle? That's uh, that's what's been so exciting about the network. VA has 171 healthcare systems, over 1,200 sites of care, 9 million veterans, and almost 400,000 staff. So how do we reach all those people with a team of four? And Caitlin and I were doing this as a team of two until the last six months. But that's where we really lean into and leverage that network and try to empower the field so that we can multiply ourselves. If we can build expertise in the field, then what we really need to do is open up opportunities and then equip people and they're able to multiply it. So we can say right now our team has supported dissemination of over 1,200 headsets across 30 different clinical uses and at least 120 unique medical centers have received support directly from us. And there's almost 170 medical centers that are engaged with the network. So they're learning from us, but we haven't necessarily specifically trained them or sent them headsets, uh, but they're engaged in using some of the resources that we provide. And I guess some of the younger veterans that might already have headsets could bring it in and plug in and get the treatment that way. That's very true. And we do have multiple accounts of that actually occurring, where even some of the patients that were introduced to it in VA care, before we were even able to get a device in their hands, they found it so valuable, they went out and bought a VR headset themselves that they then use for chronic pain, for their anxiety, for you know encounters that may trigger their PTSD, for social isolation even. So we do have patients that seek it out all by themselves. And I I wanted to make a point, too, about the the resources. So one of the things that the XR Network does is helps to build 
kind of nationally available resources for clinical staff to make it easier for them to integrate this technology into the standard of care, the standard of practice. Because that's one thing that we know for sure. When you have new technology and you're trying to integrate it into healthcare, unless they have adequate support to help them to do that, it'll end up sitting on a shelf because clinicians are busy, they go overwhelmed, they don't have the time to figure out how to do it, how to fit it into their existing clinical workflow. So that's something that we really tried to help do. And I think has been very successful in making it easier for all of those 170 plus sites to actually integrate the technology into care at individual VAs. So you're really at the outset of this program in some sense. Yeah, exactly. Caitlin Rollins and Ann Lord Bailey lead the Clinical Tech Innovation Team at the Veterans Health Administration. They're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about their work at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.